Jane told her mom, oh my gosh, somebody just tried to abduct me. Teenage girls meeting men online only to later end up dead. Because children are not developmentally capable of making proper decisions. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, writer, producer on CBS's Criminal Minds, and... Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes. You notice I don't say what I'm former because I just can't compete with Jim, so I figured I should just say, hi Jim, how are you? <sighs> Stop. Well, with us today, again, is a very special guest. John McKinney. John McKinney, also known as Detective McKinney. Correct. Well, it's great to have you back. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you, John. I mean, I know that since you were uh, here last time, we've heard from lots of listeners about your first case, and they're very eager to have you back on here so they can listen to your next case. So what kind of case is it today? It was reported as an attempted abduction. Okay. And this is a very serious crime. Sure. One of the problems with abductions is that they could become lethal events very quickly. Absolutely. Was it an abduction of a child or an adult? She was a young teenager. Okay. So... Unfortunately, those are not very good situations. Right. I mean, we did a study when I was in the behavioral analysis unit and of abductions and child abduction homicides. And 44% of kids who are abducted and killed are killed in the first hour, 73% in the first three hours, and 99% in the first 24 hours. So you have to act quickly. You have right. to know for sure if it's real and whether it's a stranger abduction, and you have to find the person right away. Right. Otherwise, the statistics are pretty grim. So in your last case, you were telling us about your first murder case, and you've mm -hmm. been um, a detective for not very long. So when did this case occur in your career? I was probably a detective for about a year. Um, so by no means seasoned or a veteran, but I had a little experience under my belt. So this was two years ago now, roughly. So tell us what you were doing when the case came into you. Well, I was on call. Um, 
and what that means is basically uh, wherever I'm at, I should probably be in my work car, be ready, look professional, be ready to go to work at any time. Phone rings, answer it. Um, patrolmen, supervisors might have questions or need me to come out and write a search warrant or need me to take over an investigation, and it's my job to be there. So you know, when you're on call, this is not your duty hours. This is you're on call when nobody else is working, right? Correct. Right. So it could be overnight. It could be on right. a weekend. It could be on a holiday. 24-7. Right. Someone's on call. And I experienced that myself when I was an assistant U.S. attorney. We had I had duty. We right. we were had rotational schedules of duty. We would have a very specific duty phone that all the agencies in the Atlanta area knew the number two. And if it was, uh, I was in the violent crime and national security section. And if it was one of those kinds of cases, and if it was evening or weekends, I was getting the call. Right. And it's one of the things we've heard from our listeners very recently, Jim. We released a, an episode with Patty Daly-Lewis, if you recall, where she was talking about getting a case while she's at like a Christmas party with her boss. And the case comes in and that's it. You drop everything. And I think that's so illustrative of what cops and agents and prosecutors have to do all the time. You're never really off duty. Right. But when you are the duty person, you're definitely not off duty. And like you say, you it doesn't if you have to roll out of bed at 3 a.m. because the duty phone rings... I've had to do that, where you have right. to then go meet the magistrate judge and the FBI agent who needs a search warrant or an arrest warrant right then. It right. doesn't wait. You don't say, oh, criminal, could you just hang out sure. for a few hours? I have things at the house I need to take care of, or my wife's going to be upset. Can you please wait a little it bit? It doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's pretty difficult. And it's really difficult if husband and wife are on the job, right? Sure. Definitely. That can be the case. So it's interesting that you say you were, you were on duty. We interviewed a detective, Christine Menina from Indianapolis. And when they're on duty, they call it uh, on the bubble. So they're waiting for the next, whoever gets the next murder is on the bubble. Right. So you were on the bubble, so to speak. I was. Yep. I got the call. I think it was pretty early in the night. I like to get called out before I go to sleep. That way I can just stay up. It's easier. <laughs> yeah. If I sleep for an hour or two, usually I'm, I'm, having a bit harder time. It is disorienting to get a call in the middle of the night and have to be professional, get up and go to court or go out to a scene. And has that happened a lot? Oh, many times. Really? Uh, For a while. We're on a rotation of about 15 detectives, give or take. So you're typically on call a couple of times a month. And for a long time, it was if I was on call, I was working through the night, no matter what. Yeah. Wow. And in a small town like that, that's pretty amazing. That's that's a lot of crime. Right. A lot of people don't realize it, but, you know, it could be minor things, too, or, you know, not always a real serious case. You still case, have to go out. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to check it out. Someone calls police. Someone has to come. Sure. So you get the call. What happens? I get the call, and it's reported as an attempted abduction. Allegedly, a stranger came to this girl's window and attempted to pull her out of the window, her bedroom window. It's nighttime, oh. uh, roughly 9 or 8 or 9 p.m. when it happened. Um, and attempted to pull her out of the window. Nothing else was known. And she was how old? 15 at the time. It sounds a lot like Polly Class or Elizabeth Smart. Yeah, and I'm telling you, I had a case, a serial um, child abduction case in, uh, well, Mesa, Arizona, and it was repeatedly that same exact scenario. Somebody would reach into an open window or slide open a window or cut a screen and grab a kid right out of their bed. 
What a scary thought, right? It's incredibly frightening. And, you know, I say all the time that true stranger abductions are rare, and they are. But that doesn't mean they don't happen. Sure. And so, of course, you have to protect your children from something like that. So this is the report. Do you go out to that child's house? I do. Yeah. And to touch on what you said about the stranger abductions, I mean, that's the worst nightmare for me. Typically, where you start with a crime is who 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 would do this? Why would they do it? They're typically close to the victim. In a stranger abduction, you don't have anything. Right. Right. So in this case, I went out to the scene. Um Started speaking to everyone involved. I just kind of had a gut feeling that. Did you wait before you go there? Sure. Did you talk to the victim's parents first or the victim? The victim's parents, without a doubt. Yeah, I talked to her mom and her dad. And what did they say? They told me that the same story our dispatchers received that um, their daughter was 15. She uh, was in her bedroom, which she has to herself, doesn't share it with anybody. The door was closed. And mom heard kind of a scream. So she thought that was a little odd. She opened the door and found Jane Doe laying on the bedroom floor. And the window to the bedroom is open. Jane told her mom, oh my gosh, somebody just tried to abduct me. Mom's first reaction was to call 911. Mom also added that about 30 minutes before this scream... Someone knocked on her door, which was odd. It's not the kind of place you get a lot of foot traffic in this neighborhood. You know, homes sit on a couple lots, not real close to the road. Abnormal to get a knock on your door at 9 p.m. At 9 p.m., okay. So and somebody knocked at the door and somebody knocked she at answered the door. the door? Mom answered the door. Uh-huh. She saw a man kind of standing, you know, sometimes how police officers stand a little far away off the door kind of peeking around, maybe a little pillar or something. And this man was standing that way. She thought it was odd. He was an older man. So she said, what are you doing here? And he gave her some sort of odd excuse. Uh, He was there because he was looking for someone. It just didn't add up to mom. Okay. So mom closed the door and said, get out of here. But she didn't call the police at that point? Not at that time. No. She waited until she heard her daughter scream. Okay. And so... So she's associating those two events. Obviously, mom is thinking that guy was seeing who's home and where they are. Right. And 30 minutes later, he's trying to grab Jane out her window. Good detective work on mom. Right. So did you interview the parents together or separately? I tried to interview them separately, but sometimes that's difficult. Obviously, you want to hear the story from each one individually, see what they know. You don't... So that... Well, you, you want to get the truth. You don't want one to be influenced by the other. Right. So and it might not, yeah, and it might not be a, you know, any nefarious no, intent uh, on their part. Human no. nature sometimes. Yeah, you want to pro- avoid cross-contamination of right. witnesses, right? So, so you interviewed the mother, and what about the father? Father wasn't home. He was at work when this all happened. Came home when he found out about it and only received the story secondhand. Got it. Okay, so then I assume the we next sp- person you interview? Is the girl, okay. Jane Doe. We talked to her. Uh, We talked to her inside the house originally with mom. And then we just kind of had the feeling that we weren't getting the whole story. Um, Not really a set of articulable facts, just Mm. that gut instinct. So we asked mom if we could talk to her outside, just her and the police. You mean Jane outside? Correct. Mm -hmm. And mom said, absolutely, no problem. So we step outside and I typically try to give people in that scenario, I try to let them know, hey, I don't believe you. 
and try and calm them down a little bit. Let them know it's okay to be honest with me. She's not in any trouble or anything. And she eventually says that she had been speaking to men online mm. and was inviting them to the house to hook up with them, either do sexual things or talk. Or, but typically these men were older. Right. Jim, how many cases have we heard of this around the world of teenage girls meeting men online only to later end up dead because they met them offline? Very in the dangerous. Real world? Yeah. I mean, when you just started saying that, Francie and I looked at each other and because we both work in the area of child sexual victimization. And this was a very, very common thing. And a lot of actual abductions, many of them start this way. They meet online. They agree to meet this person in the real world. The person either convinces them to run away or doesn't right. ask for their consent and right. takes them away. And many times that ends in a very, very bad way for the child. It does. It's sad. And I'm hoping that certainly didn't. I'm hoping this is not where this case is going. So you talk to her. She says she's been talking to men online right. and inviting them to come hook up. What happened after that? Well, she admitted that she knew the man who came to the window. Eventually, she admitted that and that she had been talking to him. And she wasn't trying, he wasn't trying to abduct her. She was trying to get out the window to meet with him. Mm. Now, she was a taller girl, not real easy to get out of those windows. So when she was seen on the ground and her, someone heard her scream, she actually fell trying to get out of the window and made, us, made up this excuse in order to save face. Meanwhile, I'm sure this guy's running away as mom's opening the bedroom door. Well, I'm hoping that as a result of that part of the interview, that you were able to seize her computer. We did. Yeah, we, I think we had a cell phone and two iPads. See, now you're up my alley. This is what I specialize in at the U.S. Attorney's Office right. was computer-facilitated child exploitation. Right. So I'm very eager to hear about how yeah. things go next. So did I. And in fact, I helped train, well, hundreds of ICAC investigators. Mm -hmm. So this would be federal, state, and local investigators that work the Internet Crimes Against Children task forces that are in every state across the United States now. Jim might have even helped train me. I don't want to admit to it, but there could have been a class or two <laughs> well, that I I'm took from Jim Clemente. sure you slept through it. Probably. Uh, <clears throat> based anyway. on your experience. <clears throat> so Jane experience admits, so Jane yes. admits, Jim, Jane admits that, that this is not what it appeared. Although it's still a crime. I mean, if she's sure. going to hook up with him, she's 15. That is under the age of consent in Florida, correct? Absolutely. So yeah. a crime is presumably planned. Absolutely. Whether she understands that or not, of course, is not the point. The adult is supposed to understand that. Certainly. And, Go yeah. ahead, Jim. And that in and of itself is a crime. So we really want to find out what happens when you get access to her electronic communication devices. Yes, and enticing Enticing a child using a computer over the internet carries a federal sentence of 10 years to life. So it, it's a big fat hit just trying to entice the child to engage in sexual activity. Sexual activity didn't even have to take place. Right. It's a federal crime. Well, the new year is finally here, and here at Best Case, Worst Case, we hope you had a wonderful holiday season full of good food and lots of great time with family and friends. 
I'm sure you've noticed over the years, there are a lot of engagements during the holiday season. I certainly have. And if you just got engaged or you have a friend who's getting ready to tie the knot, I can't wait to tell you all about Zola. Zola is reinventing the wedding registry and planning process to make the happiest moments in couples' lives even happier. It's free, easy to use, and yes, it's even fun. You can personalize your registry with photos and notes about why you're coveting certain gifts. With over 500 top brands and 50,000 gifts, experiences, and cash funds to choose from, Zola has everything you love about your favorite department store, plus things like honeymoon funds, fitness classes, wine subscriptions, and so much more. I was on the website for about two minutes before I found great gifts for a couple of nieces and nephews that are getting married soon. To sign up with Zola and receive a $50 credit toward your registry, go to Zola.com slash best case. Again, that's Zola, Z-O-L-A dot com slash best case. So what happened when you got access to her phone and her iPads? Well, that night we did a, we have our own lab where we can dump a myriad of different devices. Um, this is a... It's a forensic lab at our police department uh, in support of different ICAC task forces. So is it ICAC. a cyber? an ICAC task force affiliate? We are. So it's a cyber lab? Yes. Okay. Correct. So when you say dump the phone, what you mean is you can take all of the data, effectively copy it so you can look at it all. Correct. Yep. Hopefully so, we get all of it. So yeah. what happens? Well, what we did is a cursory search of the devices that night. So we found some different applications she was using. She found some different photographs she was trading. Well, let's talk about that because I think it's really important for the people out there who are listening, who have kids, who may be teenagers, right. to understand what they're using today. And I know that every every week or month we hear about some kind of new thing. I, the latest I heard about was Kick. Kick is not actually the latest, Jim. Jim is a bit of a caveman on technology, <laughs> can I just say? But yes, Kick is out I'll there. Agree. There's, of course, Snapchat and a ton of Insta- Instagram and tons of others. All over the place. So were those the sort of apps you were looking for? I was looking for those. I was looking for things that were a little more obvious, different like sex sites, applications for dating, things like that. Tinder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a new one every day. There is. And we found them. They were on her devices. There was clear communication with different people, including this person that we eventually found out. Which, well, okay, I can I just to, say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But I, I, I have to get on my soapbox just a tiny bit for our listeners out there because this, um, I, I, I blame her parents. I hate to say that because, of course, parents have a lot of difficulty keeping sure. up with technology. Jim's a great example, as I said, caveman. But anyway, um, they should be checking their children's devices. Sure. They shouldn't be allowed to download apps without parental permission. They should be changing the passwords every week or so on a random basis, parents. They should be looking at their children's phone and they should understand what it is that they're looking for because no child should have Kick or Tinder or Ask.fm, any of these known bullying sites, right. these sex sites. They shouldn't have them. And the fact that she did tells me and you, obviously, that her parents weren't checking her phone. Yeah, right? well, I'm sure that they just didn't know that that was a risk. Yeah, and 
Probably not. And who can keep up with stuff like that? Well, I certainly can't. Francie apparently can't. I don't know how. <laughs> well, but, it's, it is actually time consuming and you really have to dedicate yourself to understanding sure. technology. And parents have lots of lots of things going on. They have lots of other concerns. They're just trying to work and put food on the table and, and keep their child you know, going to school. But I'm interested in what you discovered. You said that her downloads or the, the dump that you did on her devices showed you a person. Right. But what was her profile like on these apps? Was she identifying herself as a teenage girl who was 15? Not necessarily. No. In the communication I found between her and the suspect that we inevitably located, she didn't identify herself as 15. She was pretending to be of age and she didn't appear to be underage. I could see believing that she's 18 years old. Which is why the guy came to the front door. Mm. He wasn't sneaking around the back or sneaking at her window, at least not first. He came to the front door. However, then he went to her window. Yes, he did. Which suggests to me that at, I don't know what point, he knew she was a child. Because he's not walking in the door asking for her. Certainly, once you go to the door and you encounter mom and you realize... She lives with her parents. Maybe I shouldn't be here. And then you go to the window. I, I agree there's some implication of guilt. Yeah, yes, definitely. Sure. And so it's also possible that in the interim, between the time he was at the front door and the time he was at the back window, that he and Jane Doe had some form of communication. Absolutely. And she directed him around there, or he said, climb out your window. Right. Which, to Francie's point, I don't think is any less makes him any less guilty, but certainly they discussed it. Uh, there were some photographs we've seen that were traded between the two of them. Like sexual photographs? Yep, criminal in nature. There's definitely qualifies child porn. Child pornography. Without yeah, a doubt. and of course, we like to call it. Indecent images of children or the sexual uh, exploitation of children. Yes. Although images. child pornography is the correct legal term in this country, but the rest of the world calls it something different because I think pornography – makes people think it's somehow volitional or right. voluntary by the children that are participating in what are these horrific photos, sometimes of assault, sometimes self-produced, uh, but are ultimately a crime scene. Right. So sexual abuse images are a crime scene. It's contraband. It's just like cocaine would be or heroin would be. Mm-hmm. You can't possess it. You can't make it without Violating the law. And, and by the way, to any potential offenders out there, the fact that you didn't know she was 15 when you have the child pornography is not a defense. No. But here's an issue that you raised. We're not saying that the victim is at fault here. Correct. These laws are put in place because children are not developmentally capable of making proper decisions with respect to sexual relationships with adults. And so because of that imbalance of power and to protect them from their own lack of development, these laws are in place. And if a child is engaged in sexual activity with an adult, the adult is always the criminal, right. not the child. So you have you identified him from her devices or do no. you just kind of know he's the person who came? All night? we have, we have some applications. We have the screen names he used on those applications, which as you guys know, 
It's going to be Coming weeks. Bef- right. Yeah, weeks before I can tie any real identity to that. So we were able to get his phone number in a cursory search of the device. And I remember sitting in my car where I have my computer, and we have new dozens of databases I can look for a phone number in, uh, searching all sorts of things. Can't find any of them. Mm. And a lot of people use phones that are hard to find phone numbers for sometimes. For phones sometimes, yeah. Those pay-as-you-go phones. So I was really at a loss. I, I had nothing else to go on. I didn't know who this guy was. She alleged that she didn't know him. I decided I would call a local sheriff's office just out of a hunch and see if their database, which I can access and doesn't communicate with my databases, mm. had that it's phone number. I mean, this is mm. one of the problems. Huge issues. I think there are 17,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States of America, and most of them don't communicate with each if other. If we could just all get on the same thing, it'd be a beautiful world. Well, that's why VICAP was actually put in place. Uh, unfortunately, it's still growing, and mm. it needs to grow more. Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, where they offer law enforcement agencies free software and hardware to put all their data in. Which is very expensive. Yeah, free mm-hmm. if they put it on this system. And that means that all the other agencies that are on VICAP will be able to communicate with each other. Right. But so I'm guessing that since you brought it up, that you checked your databases and they didn't work, but you reached out to the sheriff, that maybe the sheriff had a response. Right. The sheriff's office had done a traffic stop not too long before this, and an individual gave that phone number. It's common that police officers write your phone number on traffic citations. Mm. Smart. Right. And that was recorded. So that came down to someone sitting in a records area, typing that little number in, and then it gave me a suspect. Wow. That's fast. That's way faster than you can get the internet responses to find out who the internet service provider is and then get a subpoena to them and then find out who's maybe sitting behind the device. Right. Yeah. So what happened? So I was able to track that phone number to an address, which is in a a town almost in the center of the state, actually. It's called Arcadia. Mm. Uh, Very rural, old, very, there's a ton of history there. Uh, My partner and I go out to this address. We meet with that sheriff's office, which is a different sheriff's office than I contacted for Mm -hmm. the lead. A deputy meets us. We explain to him what we want to do. And there's a nice home on this piece of property. We go to the front door of the home. Wait, have you seen a picture of your suspect, by the way, in the the images that he sent to the child? Nope. None. So you don't know what he looks like? Nope. Not at all. Okay. Definitely going in blind, so to speak. Great. Can I just ask you something? When you got on the porch, did you hang back from the door a little bit and hang by the pillar? <laughs> I did. Okay. I did. Just wanted to know. Absolutely. Okay. In so the are shadows. We, are we wondering whether this guy's a cop? Okay. Keep going. <laughs> no, but <laughs> I'm hoping not. So I knock on the door. A gentleman comes to the door. And it's 3 o'clock in the morning at this point. Obviously, really? he probably wants John to John McKinney, know. are you telling me that you are trying to protect a child by just staying out and investigating the case no matter what the hours? In other words, you didn't just close the file and say, I'll go look for this guy at 9 a.m.? Without a doubt. Amazing. Awesome. You're amazing. That's dedication. Hashtag dedicated cop. Hashtag I'm hero. totally going to use it. Okay. So. He answers the door. We explain to him who we were there for, just off the hunch of the person who was given the citation. He said, oh, uh, he lives in my barn. Is there anything I need to know? Nope. Do you mind if we talk to him? (laughs) Not a problem. He lives Lives in my barn. barn. I I think that might be the first time I've heard that. (laughs) 
It was a very large lives barn. Lives in my barn. All okay. right. So he walks us to the back of his property to the barn through a couple sets of doors. And there's a living quarters. Mm-hmm. And there's a gentleman in bed, clearly a little startled that we're there. And we just begin talking to him. Very consensual in nature. We ask him if he had anything to do with Jane Doe. Mm. Originally, he denied it. Those spidey senses, if you will, kicked in again. Mm -hmm. Clearly, he was lying. So we pushed him on it a little bit harder. And then he admitted that he met her online. He admitted that he came to her house. He admitted what his intent was at some point. Um, But he claimed he didn't know her age. How were your spidey senses on that question? I He was questioning her age without a doubt. Yeah. Did you bring up the fact that he snuck around the back and had her climb out the window? Of course. Why would somebody of age have to do that? Never done that on an adult date. Maybe I can just, say neither have I, Jim. I'm maybe, just going to put it out there. Maybe we're just boring. But go ahead. Could so what did he say? He claimed he didn't know. Uh, he, he claimed... Um, He had no negative intentions, no criminal intentions, but he did give us his cell phone. He let us take his cell phone, and we did, and we eventually dumped that, so to speak. Um, We didn't arrest him that night. We didn't arrest him at all, actually. We could never charge him. We weren't able to get enough to charge him. One of the reasons, it's my worst case, but when we looked at his cell phone, we found no child porn other than the photographs Jane Doe had sent him. But why wasn't that chargeable? The state didn't like the case just based on the look of the images. Because the child looked older than she was. Right. And that she was portraying herself as an adult. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't immediately recognizable that she wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, filing decision made by them. Yeah. Prosecutors. Hmm. Anyway. Some of them aren't that brave, Jim. I'm just going to be honest yeah. and set it up right out there. Well, they have certain rules they have to follow. I try not to get too upset about it. Well, you can get upset about it. Jim and I don't mind. Yeah. Jim often gets upset about things. <sighs> Francie doesn't, <clears throat> but she does make others upset somehow. <laughs> I don't know. Magic, I guess. It's a gift. So let's talk about this. So you weren't able to prove it, even though he had images, sexualized images of a child, because they didn't seem to sort of be very blatant. Correct. Okay. Correct. So what happened after that? Well, eventually, we were able to get the full forensic download done on all the devices we took. And I noticed in her communications with people over some of the different apps she was using that she was always seeking out older men, Hmm. much older, not just 18 handsome guys, but 60s. Oh, wow. Always, without fail. And I thought that was very odd. Yeah, I think you were right about that. So now I'm a little bit worried about what's going on at home, but mm, keep going. My point exactly, Francie. So I looked into that a little bit deeper. I began talking to mom, who I had a good working relationship with, felt like she trusted me. I felt like she would tell me anything I needed to know. Told her my concerns. She claimed she didn't have any of the same concerns. I then did a forensic interview with the girl. And forensic interviews, I don't know if you guys are familiar with them in the federal system or in your states. Yes, very. But they're done by professionals to interview children. They ask very non-leading questions. They make them feel very comfortable. So did you do the interview or you had a child 
interview specialist do the interview? I had a specialist do the interview. Okay. I have some training in it, but not nearly to the level. And was it at a child advocacy center? It's very similar. We call them child protection centers. Okay, great. That's a wonderful thing. We like to hear that. We do like to hear that. I, I have a ton of experience with those. I worked as a state prosecutor with the child advocacy centers in my state when I specialized in crimes against children there when I was an ADA. And those are really the unsung heroes because they literally train themselves to sit and listen to the most horrific things children sometimes have to say. Mm -hmm. And I just have so much respect for these forensic interviewers because, and forensic evaluators, because that is uh, secondary trauma for them every day on their job. They have to look children in the eye Children will say horrible things about something someone has done to them, and their response has to be incredibly neutral. Why don't you tell me more about that? They can't express shock, dismay, disbelief, horror, all of which, of course, they're feeling. We would all be feeling on the inside. They have to be that way, and I think it's so difficult. So I'm very glad to hear that you have access to those professionals. So what was the result of this interview? We didn't glean anything useful. Hard to tell. Typically, I sit and watch those if I have a victim or a suspect being interviewed in there. I like to watch them on a video camera. I didn't notice any real body language that I thought was noteworthy. I didn't get anything from it, which I felt a little disappointed and I was a little confused by it. So I figured after that, I would speak to her father. I really wanted to speak to Jane Doe's father alone, mm-hmm. or at least without mom or daughter there. And in order to get him in, I had to ask mom to bring him in. I didn't really tell her exactly what I was going to ask him or what I was going to do. She did, and my partner and I sat him down and discussed some things with him. And it came up that in his past, he had had a crime that he was convicted for, for sexual relationship with a family member that was younger than him. Oh, my. And of a certain age group. So I was obviously more concerned at that point. Mm -hmm. I asked him if he would take a polygraph. He said he would not. He refused. There's a clue. And he he wouldn't admit to anything. I believe at one point he had made references to his attorney. We stopped the interview. Um, I spoke to mom. I expressed my concerns, my overwhelming concerns to her. Was she aware of the conviction? She was not aware of the conviction. He had lied to her about what he did that time in prison for. Mm. And another red flag. Definitely a red flag. So obviously she found out. And when she found out, I told her, you know, my concerns and eventually had to close the case because I couldn't do anything with it. So did mom stay with him? The last I know, mom did stay with him, yes. It's just shocking. It's so maddening because so many people, I like to say in my, just a sort of a rough estimate, in my cases prosecuting as an assistant DA, when I would prosecute sexual crimes against children, about 70% of the moms did not support the child. It was shocking to me that they would rather prioritize their relationship, the money the offender gave them, whatever it was, their instincts were contrary to what society says a mom's instincts are. And instead of protecting their child to their death, they keep the child available to the offender. And it's just a fact. It is a sad fact in these kinds of crimes. And it sounds like that's exactly what's happening here. Yeah. But let's look at the flip side of this, too. 
the reason why you suspected that the father might be sexually involved with Jane Doe mm-hmm. was because of her behavior. Right. It's kind of extreme behavior. Absolutely. And acting out behavior, sexual acting out behavior like that, many times has its roots in victimization. Being so sexually advanced at that age. Exactly. Seeking and, out older men. Right. Like uh, there's a lot of red flags there. So that's a cautionary tale to people out there. And, you know, I just have one other question to ask, though. If she was interacting with all these other guys, weren't there any other guys on that phone or on that iPad that could be prosecuted? Not that we could identify. And there was other than communication. We didn't find any other child porn that was sent to him. Really? And but she said she had been meeting guys. Was this right. the first guy she met in person? No, she had met another guy who we couldn't identify. Oh, geez. Oh, John McKinney, I can see why this is uh, your well, worst case. Please tell us. I know it may be easy to figure out, but tell us why this is your worst case. Well, in my opinion, she was definitely victimized at some point. I think, as you guys know, working sex crimes a long time. Typically, offenders have an age group that they preference, and I think she was probably growing out of that person who was victimizing her preference, and she was seeking some attention from other people, and it just so happened to be that they were about her dad's age, and that was very ironic, and I picked up on it. Mm. And it's my worst case because I felt it was my duty to stop that, and I didn't. I failed. Well, it sounds like, though, you probably stopped it, I think you probably be right about her aging out of his preferential age group. So she may not have been at risk to her father anymore, but she was reaching out to the community and finding other guys like right. that who would take advantage of her as well. I worry about her for the future, like you say, but I have to, I have to disagree with you, Detective McKinney. When you say you failed, you absolutely did not fail. You did everything you could possibly do sure. within the bounds of the law to seek justice, to find the crime, and to prevent it from happening again. There isn't anything else you could have done. And when there isn't anything else you could have done, that's not a failure. Right. Plus, think about it. You not only educated the mother mm-hmm. about what was going on in her own family, right? You also educated the daughter because I'm sure that once she disclosed this to you and once she was interviewed, that she was made aware of services that could help her. Without a doubt. Okay. Well, that. That's help. Sure. It is help. And even though many times victims do not disclose immediately. I was a victim when I was a kid. I didn't disclose till 10 years later. It's how I ended up becoming an FBI agent. But many victims take a long time to disclose. And the fact that you helped her, that you were so dedicated to that cause, and that you gave her an opportunity for help, hopefully one day she will take that. And maybe she will speak out. Yeah, I hope so too. We can't force them to but we can give them an opportunity to and give them help. And I think that's an amazing thing. So you should actually be congratulated. I understand why it's the worst case and I understand why it probably bothers you, but 
you should also be very proud of the fact that you were dedicated, that you didn't let things just sort of get swept under the rug, that you did your best. And you also, I'm sure, put the fear of God into that father and hopefully motivations into the mother. I cannot believe you just said that. I was literally about to say you put the fear of God, as we would say in the South, in him. So good job, Jim. You're like an honorary Southerner now. Really? Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) I hope that's a compliment. I think it is. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for being with us again and sharing your worst case, although maybe you're beating yourself up on it. A little bit too much. Well, that's because he's hashtag dedicated cop. There you go. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we're signing off now for Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba and hosted by Wondery. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless. But the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org.